standing as we welcome our very own Mr. Falk up this morning. Good morning, NC. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. I'm glad to hear that. At least one person's good there. Um, you can get into your Bibles. We're going to turn and look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. Um, just listening to that psalm and then even Mr. Heckley's prayer, I would just re-echo uh, that. Is there a God like ours anywhere? No, there is not. Who is like our God? And uh, he is so amazing, and we're going to see that today. Um, I want you to know that I've been praying uh, for you, that your hearts would be open, just as Mr. Heckley prayed, um, that God would do an amazing work. It's nothing that I can do. It's nothing that I will say, but it is God's word speaking that makes a difference in hearts. And my prayer is that you would be moved and challenged uh, by the word of the Lord this morning. We're going to start out uh, just a quick review, and then we'll, we'll look into chapter 8 a little bit. I got it easy. I only have one chapter um, to do. I didn't have to do like others and do three or four chapters or whatever they've been doing. Uh, but let's review back through Samuel up through chapter 8. Chapter 1, we see the birth of Samuel and all the, the trials there with his mother and, and dad and things like that. Chapter 2, we see Samuel is ministering as a little boy and growing in favor with the Lord. In chapter 3, we see that God speaks to Samuel. He calls him into uh, the ministry of being used by God. In chapter 4, uh, we see the ark is captured. That we, If you remember, Mr. Thiessen talked about that we, the Israelites treated the ark as kind of a good luck charm, that they kind of manipulated God, or they tried to. And uh, in there, in chapter 4, what we also see is that Eli, the high priest, and his sons are killed. Uh, they all die. Chapter 5, we see the ark among the Philistines. We didn't really get a look at that, and I would encourage you to go back and look. because It's an amazing story of the power of God in a pagan world, in a pagan kingdom, and just even there how God is evident and the Philistines recognize the evidence of God and they're scared of it. And so in chapter 6, what you see is they return the Ark of the God, uh, Ark of the Covenant back to the Israelites because they're being tormented, they're being killed, they're being uh, just tormented with tumors and all sorts of things going on there. It's a really interesting and amazing story. And then we get to chapter 7, and really in chapter 7 what you see is you see kind of a summary in a nutshell of Samuel and his life as a judge. And it's just one chapter, and yet you really see what happens. The people repent, they confess of their sinfulness, they ask Samuel to pray for him or for them, and as Samuel does, and God fights for Israel. God fights for Israel, and there is peace in the land of Israel uh, at the end of chapter 7. And you'd look at that and you'd say, everything looks really good. <clears throat> And then we come to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we see something that is not good. And it's Israel demanding a king. And that's what we're going to deal with this morning. Uh, Israel demanding a king. So I want to read uh, just verses 1 through 9 of chapter 8. And then we're going to summarize the rest of it. It's not that long, but just for time's sake. Um, I want you to hear the word of the Lord. This is God's word to us. Uh, it should be a very easy read. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's word this morning in respect for his word. First, King, or First Samuel, sorry. Uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. 
they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing to the, in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we look into your word this morning, into the truth of Scripture, my prayer is that your truth would infiltrate the hearts of each one here, myself included. God, your word is powerful. It is active. It is living. It can cut through the false deceit that is in our hearts and provide truth to us. May you have us have ears not only to hear but to listen and then to do your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so I want to look through uh, verses uh, 1 through 9 and just kind of look back and, and kind of summarize a few things here that we see uh, and really important things to deal with. In verse 1 through 3, you see that Samuel is now old. Um, there is some time that has passed between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Nobody knows for sure how much time that would have been, but uh, he is now older. He's, he's getting to the end of his life. And what we see is as he gets to the end of his life, he appoints his sons, uh, they'd be two adult sons, as judges. Now, if you know anything about bib biblical history, Samuel is considered the last judge of Israel because they're going to move into kings after this. But he was a judge, but he wanted his sons to be the next judges. This, what he did, his action was wrong. And probably what we'd have to say is sinful, okay? Uh, it's kind of a common thing. You can probably understand someday. You'll probably be a parent. If you're a parent in here, you understand how you kind of show favoritism to your kids and, and you want them to succeed and, and have positions of power and title and everything else. And uh, that's really what Samuel does is he puts his sons there, even though he really doesn't have a right to do that. There was never a pattern in Israel where judges were appointed by man. So for Samuel to take this role and say, hey, you know what, I have the authority to put you in this position, that is not a good thing. There was nowhere in the history of Israel wherever the judges passed from father to son. God appointed the judges. God was the one who determined who would be the next one to help Israel. So this was wrong by what Samuel did. The other problem with Samuel's sons is that they are wicked. The Bible tells us that. They did not walk in God's ways. They did not walk as Samuel walked. And it's kind of interesting that Samuel would have seen that and would have known that, but he excused their sinfulness. He, he excused their sin in, in what he saw in others. He did not, uh, he was blinded to their sin, as many parents sometimes are. 
And so what happens, if you go to verse 4, you see that the elders come in. So they step up and they say, whoa, 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 wait a second here, Samuel. And you see wisdom here. And they come and they say, no way, pretty much. No way. Your sons are not going to be the judges because they don't rule properly. They're evil. They're wicked. They're sinful. They're not what needs to be over Israel. And that's a very wise action on their part to step up and to say that. But what they start out as being a wise, a wise action, they finish it with a foolish response as well. Okay? And what you see is the foolishness of the elders then say, we don't want your sons, but rather instead, we want a king. We want you to appoint us or for us a king. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, almost 400 years earlier, uh, verses 14 and 15, God knew that one day Israel would have a king. He, he knows all things. He was all-knowing. And so he would know that there was a king coming. Um, and his purpose would be to have a king in place. But Israel is working on their own time and not the time of God, although God would not be surprised by their response. The problem was for the elders to state this idea that they wanted a king is they wanted a king for all the wrong reasons. And you'll see that in verse 5. If you go back, it says, uh, appoint a king for us. Why? So that we can look like all the nations. We want to be judged just like everybody else is being judged according to how they do things. They wanted to be like the rest of the world. That is the foolishness of the elders here. That is the sinfulness of the people's request to have a king. They wanted just to look like everybody else. Proverbs 14 verse 12 says this, there is a way which seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. And that's what we see happening here. They thought that they knew. They thought that this was right, and it's going to cause all sorts of issues for them. There was a big difference between a king and a judge. And the Israelites would have understood this, okay? But you need to understand this. What was a judge? A judge like Samuel and the other judges that we read about in Scripture were leaders that were raised up by God. Usually they were raised up to meet a specific time of crisis. And when that crisis was over, the judge went back just to being a normal person and doing what he normally would have done. He did not hold that position forever. A king, on the other hand, not only held held his office as king as long as he lived, but then he would pass down his throne to his descendants. And so what we see Israel doing is they're clamoring for a king. One of the uh, judges that you read about is Gideon, and you probably all know who Gideon would be, or at least maybe have heard of his name before, you know, the guy that puts the Bibles in the hotel rooms, right? Gideon, when he was judge, uh, the people wanted to make him king. And in Judges verse, or chapter 8, verse 23, this is what Gideon said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Okay? Uh, this was the heart of the judges. It was a heart that says, uh, we are not a king. God is your king. Don't look to man 
to become a king over you. Keep God as king over you. The judges understood that. And so for 400 years, there was, there was no king of Israel. God was their king. There actually was a king. It was God, right? And God ruled and did things as a king, king could do. Uh, and no human king could ever do. <clears throat> well, we see in verses 6 through 8 that this displeases Samuel, and he prays to God. That's a great thing to do when you're displeased or distraught or in an issue. Uh, go to the Lord, and that's what Samuel does. He goes to the Lord, and he, and he talks to God about what's happening here. And in verse 7, God says, you know what, Samuel, listen to them. And he says this, uh, it's not about you, Samuel, it's about me. And what he, he says is, they haven't rejected you but they rejected me. What a sad statement. They didn't reject you, Samuel. They rejected their king. In many ways, uh, God knew Israel would have a king, as I said, but he wanted to give them a king in his timing because Israel demanded a king for bad and carnally-minded reasons. God will give them a bad and carnally-minded king and Israel will get what they want, and they will pay a high price for it. So don't miss this. This is the, the major point that we have to deal with in this, in this chapter. Israel rejected God's plan and declared they didn't want him as their king anymore. How horrible. How horrible. Verse 8, God says, you know what, Samuel, they've been doing this since we left Egypt. So many hundreds of years ago when they took out of Egypt or left from Egypt, he says they've been doing it ever since then. It doesn't surprise me at all. They've rejected me for many, many years. But he says in verse 9, you need to warn them about the king that I'm going to give to them. I'm going to give them one last chance. I'm going to let them understand they won't be able to say, hey, we didn't know that this was going to be the kind of kings that we were going to have because I'm going to tell them, and Samuel, you're going to tell them for me. And then in verses 10 through 17, what you see is you see the procedures of the king. This is what the king is going to be. This is what he's going to do to you, Israel, and this is what Samuel tells them. God wanted them to know what the problems a king would bring, and he goes through that in verses 10 through 17. And here's what you're going to hear. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards. He will take your male and female servants. He will take your best young men. He will take your donkeys for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks. Do you hear over and over again what is happening there? What this king and the kings that are going to follow are going to do? They're going to take. They're going to take. Human kings are takers, not givers. They will become soldiers. They will become chariot drivers. They will become servants, perfumers, cooks, bakers. You will have to give your produce that you've worked hard for to the king so he can feed his people. Take, 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 take. That's what the king will do. You're going to give up, Israel, personal freedom. They didn't have that with God as their king. They had freedom. They could live life. God provided for them, and yet they're going to fall underneath a very harsh, authoritative kingship. 
Verse 18, God says, you will cry out, or Samuel tells them, you will cry out. The people are going to regret their decision, and God will refuse to deliver them underneath the kings of who will be oppressing them. The king's influence will be great. If you go back and you look at Israel's history, there's 44 kings, depending if you call Saul's son a king before David, okay? But there's 44 kings. Some of them don't last very long. Some of them last a long time, years, 55 years, okay? Uh, others last a month or a day or, or different things like that. But there's 44 kings of Israel and Judah. Did you know if you look at the kings of Judah and Israel together, there's only a handful of them, under 10, that were true followers of God, probably more likely five or six. Out of 44, five or six, what we read, would mainly say that they followed God. They all were flawed, they all were sinful humans, and they all sinned, but there were some that strived to live how God would want them to live. Most of them led Israel into immorality and idolatry. They led them away from their true king. And Israel paid deeply for that. You go into the history of Israel. What happens to them? They're taken away by the Assyrians. They're put into exile. What happens to Judah? They're taken into exile by the Babylonians. Why? Because of how their kings had influenced them and corrupted their lives. Really, you want a king, Israel? That's what you're going to get. Because they're human and they're flawed. Why would you want to be under this, Israel? That's really the question there. Because they're not willing to trust in the Lord. They've come up with their own ideas. They've listened to false and deceptive teaching, false and deceptive ways, and so that's what they want to do. So even hearing this in verses 19 through 22, as you go through the rest of the chapter 8, Israel still demands a king. They say there in verse 19, no but we will have a king over us. Yeah, all that stuff, that sounds bad, Samuel. Uh, we'll deal with it. We want a king. They don't understand. They're not understanding what they're going to have to deal with. It's foolishness, okay? There's a way that seems right, but in the end, it leads to death. And that's what Israel is going to find out here. So in the next chapters of Samuel, as we go on, you're going to see the king that God gives to Israel. <clears throat> you're going to see their first king, King Saul, and you're going to see his issues and his problems. And after Israel's king fails, then you're going to see that God gives his king, King David. And David is very far from perfect as well, but God is going to give him to them. In verse 20, again, you see this, and, and this is so important for us, and this is the, the thing that I want to kind of dwell upon a little bit longer. Look at verse 20. Why do they want the king? Because it says that we may be like all the other nations. We want to look like everybody else. And that was never God's goal for Israel. God wanted them to be different. He wanted them to impact the world. If you go back and you look at where God put the Israelites, they were in a position of influence to impact the world. There were trade routes galore that would go through Israel. And they didn't do what God intended for them to do. They wanted to be just like everybody else in the world. But it goes on more than that. It says, we want to look like all the other nations 
And we want our king so that he can judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. Now, that sounds kind of like, okay, that's a, that's a good thing, that the king is going to judge, and then he's going to go out and fight battles. But we just already talked about the corruption of those kings and how they led all the people astray, led Israel astray, right? But they think he's going to judge us better than God can judge. And they thought that he will fight our battles, battles better than God will fight. Here's the question. What, is, what has God been doing throughout all of Israel's history? What has God done before 1 Samuel all the way to the back beginning or to the front of the book beginning in Genesis chapter 1? What has he done? He's been fighting Israel's battles. He's been fighting them for him. He's been judging them correctly and righteously. And they don't see that. He fought for them. He gave the plagues to Egypt. He opens up the Red Sea so that they can go through and destroys the Egyptian army. He gives water and manna to the Israelites as they wander in the desert for 40 years. 40 years. He provides. Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, are on the, the uh, east side of the, the Dead Sea and, and the Jordan River. And as Israel gets ready to go into the land of Canaan, they conquer those two powerful kings and kingdoms, not because they were great, but because God was great. He is fighting their battles for them. He knocks the walls of Jericho down. The, the, the conquest of Canaan happens because God fights, and people don't, the Israelites don't even have to hardly fight a lot of times because of God, that he is the king that goes out and fights for them. In chapter 5, I told you it's kind of an interesting place to go and look. The Philistines found this out, how God fights for his people. If you go back and look at chapter 5, and you can look at this later on, you remember the Ark of the Covenant is, is taken by the Philistines. And so the Philistines say, hey, you know what? Uh, Israel's God, which is represented by this Ark of the Covenant, uh, our God must have been stronger than him. So we're going to put our God, uh, we're going to put the, the Ark of the Covenant in front of our God, which is a big statue. God's name was Dagon. And if you read the story, the night they put the Ark of the Covenant in there, they come back the next day, and Dagon is falling flat, flat on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. There's a lot of symbolism there that he is worshiping or he's having to bow down, probably not worshiping, but bowing down to the one true God. And since Dagon's not powerful enough to do anything, they pick him back up and they prop him up so that he'll stand again, stand up as a statue, and the next morning they come in, and guess what? Dagon's down on his face again, and now his head and his hands have been knocked off. Not only that, there's death going on in any city that the Ark of the Covenant stays in. Uh, there's tumors that the men get because of the Ark of the Covenant being in their city. And they keep passing it to town to town, city to city, because like, we don't want it anymore. You come and get it. And finally, the Philistines recognize, you know what? Israel's God is too powerful for us. And sit, send that thing out of here. Ship it back to them. Amazing. In chapter 7, you read about the Philistines, apparently didn't learn their lesson, and so the Israelites repent, and then they go to war with the Philistines, and they conquer the Philistines. They take back the land that the Philistines have taken. Why? Because God is fighting their battles. But apparently Israelites can't recognize this or quickly forget. Not only that, in chapter 7 it says, not only did you have peace with Israel with the Philistines on the west side of Israel, but you also have peace with the Amorites on the east side of Israel. There is peace in the land. God, the king, has brought peace to his land. And yet, 
how quickly Israel forgets and asks for a king, a human king. See, Israel didn't need a king. They already had the most powerful king they could ever want in the Lord, the God of Israel. But the people of Israel made the mistake. They thought that a sinfully flawed human being could take better care of them than the kind, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, merciful, compassionate God-King, Yahweh. They rejected God and accepted the world as better. And so in verses 21 and 22, what God says to Samuel, he says, listen to him. Listen to him and give them their king. And that's what you're going to read about as we go on into Samuel from here. Well, what we need to deal with is this. There is a warning found in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel that each of us here at NC needs to hear and needs to be aware of. Today, when we live in the ways of the world, when we're being influenced by the world's ideas, and we all are, we all are influenced by the world's ideas, we are in a sense doing a similar thing as Israel. We are rejecting God and accepting that which the world has to offer as better. Now, it's probably not so much that we're saying we're going to put a figurehead uh, as king, but we still succumb to the pressures of the world. And we don't allow God to sit on his throne as Christians even, as we should. We're too much influenced in, in wrong ways. And so what I would like to do is I just want you to evaluate a little bit of your life. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, then you need to evaluate where is the worldly influence coming into your life? And what are you allowing into your life that rejects God and accepts worldly things instead of God? Where are you allowing the world to rule? So here's some questions. What are you watching? It, it, here's the thing. These, nothing, none of this is new. You hear this all the time. But does it affect you? Does it change you? Do you are you challenged by these things? What are you watching? Who are you listening to? And what are you listening to? What are you saying? What are you thinking? What are you doing? Where are you going? All of those questions, if you are honest with yourself and you start to evaluate yourself and you dig deep and you really think about those things, you're going to see. You're going to see, oh, you know what? Yeah, what I'm doing here, God, I'm rejecting you and I'm going the way of the world. May that not be. May that not be. I'm concerned for each one of you, as a student, as faculty, as staff, for myself as well. See, we hear this all the time, right? You hear this in chapel. You hear it in Bible class. You hear it in other classes as well. It's nothing new. There's no new challenge here. But my question is, are you listening or are you just hearing? <clears throat> you know the difference between hearing and listening? <clears throat> Excuse me. Hearing is just the process of perceiving sound. So we'll say sometimes in one ear, out the other, and you just, just kind of hear sound and noise, and that's it. It's just perceiving sound 
and that's all you get. There's no meaning. There's no long-term uh, gain to it. And then there's listening. Listening is paying attention to a message in order to hear it, in order to understand it, and to physically or verbally respond to it. And see, that's what we need to start to do is to listen instead of just hear. And the only way you can, the only way you can listen if the Holy Spirit's going to move. Because otherwise it's just hearing. You're just hearing things. And it goes in one ear and it goes out the other. I had an interesting uh, conversation. It's been a while ago now, but I used to be a chaplain for the UNK football team and uh, would have young men, college men playing football and, and I would uh, do a Bible study for them. And we'd talk a lot about different things, talk about of life and, and immorality and the different things that they need to be aware of. And I had a young player uh, that ended up uh, being sexually immoral, had a baby out of wedlock. He got married to the, to his, the, the lady. Uh, the marriage didn't go well. I uh, had another kid with her, and at some point they got divorced, and uh, he's living separated from her. And he called me one day, and he said, uh, he said, you know what? I used to go to Bible study, and he said, the problem that I had is that I would hear, but I wasn't listening. And his life is totally messed up because he wouldn't listen. Don't you be that way. You have to listen to God's word. It has to affect you. It has to change you. God must open your heart, but may that be your prayer. That's my prayer for you. God, open their hearts here to listen and to allow them to understand and respond. You know, it comes down to this. Everybody here belongs to two kingdoms, one of two kingdoms, right? You've heard this before as well. We got two kingdoms. You got the kingdom of God. You got the kingdom of, of sin, the kingdom of Satan, pretty much. You're either a child of God or a child of wrath. That's really where it is, right? You're going to belong, and you do belong to one of those two kingdoms. Let me just end with some of God's words about these kingdoms here. If you are an unbeliever, if you do not have a faith in Jesus Christ, then you're in this kingdom, the worldly kingdom of Satan. If Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, if you don't believe in Jesus, I'll let God's words tell you. Listen to this. Here's a description of this kingdom. Here's a description of the ruler over you, your king. John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you do not or you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. John 10, 10, first part. The thief, Satan, the ruler of you, if you're an unbeliever, comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's the kingdom that you are a part of if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior. But it gets worse. There's more. Here's the destination, the end of your ruler. Revelation 20.10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they, all three, the beast, the false prophet, and Satan, 
will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's his destination. The sad thing is this. It's your destination as well if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Revelation 21, 15. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he also was thrown into the lake of fire. You're a child of wrath. You will be tormented day and night for eternity if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior. But it doesn't have to be that way. Believe in Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer. God, help people here understand, to listen, to hear, and to respond to the gospel. You can join the kingdom of God. You can do that today. Well, the second kingdom, let's look at the eternal kingdom of God. There's only one way into this kingdom, as I think that I've made clear. It's belief in Jesus Christ and his work. Do you know why we do the Apostles' Creed every single first day of the week? Because that's what we believe. At least as Christians, that's what we believe. Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a completely sinless life as a human. He died on a cross. He took the sins of those who will believe in him upon himself, and he gave those who will believe in him his righteousness so they can stand before God and be seen as righteous. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. He sits at the right hand of God today and intercedes for you and prays for you. That is the king that you need to serve. Nothing can remove you from this. Nothing. If you are God's, you are his for eternity. There can be no accusation brought against you. I gave you a description of Satan let me give you one for Jesus. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one except himself knows, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. The Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is your king, if you're a believer. There is no better king. My question is, are you serving him loyally? Are you living for him? Or is he kind of the king that you put to the side and you live how you want? Who is your king? That's the question that I want to ask this morning. Who is your king? Who do you serve? couple verses left because the power, the power of this is not in me. It's in the power of God's word. Listen to this. Romans 12, verse 2, just the first part. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, we have to struggle. Our battle is against the world. Don't conform to it. If Jesus Christ is your king, don't conform. 
James 1, 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Don't be stained by the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. John 5, 4, 1 John 5, 4. Whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is victory that has overcome the world, our faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Your king. I mentioned earlier in Revelation, it talks about if, if a unbeliever's name is not written in the book of life, then they are thrown into the lake of fire. Here's my question. Is your name written in the book of life? The only way for that name to be there is because you have a belief in Jesus Christ. He must be your Lord and Savior. I know you hear that all the time, but may it mean something more than just hearing. May you listen. If he is not your Lord and Savior, what is keeping you from confessing and repenting of your sins? Pray that the Holy Spirit would move. Pray that God would open up your heart to the truth, that you would hear the truth and respond. Trust in Jesus alone to save you. If you are a believer, then grow in your love for the Lord. Remind yourself of what he has done for you. Be obedient. Set your mind on the things above. And then with the help of the Holy Spirit, go serve your king. Go serve your king. Let's pray. Father, may we... Uh, truly be people to this day who not only hear but are listening and who would respond correctly to your gospel, to your words, so powerful, so precious, so needed in each of our lives. God, help us to serve you and you alone as our king. May we not reject you, but may we continue to be obedient. May we be people who only accept you as our righteous king. You will never fail us. Who else but you? We thank you for the goodness and the faithfulness of you. And I just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.